Take your Bible and turn to Ephesians chapter number 4. Ephesians chapter 4. As we go to the Word of God. I know that some of you are visiting with us, and we praise God for that. Um, just to bring you up to speed, over the past several weeks, we've taken a, um, a detour um, out of our regular expo- exposition of the book of Mark. Uh, what a blessing it's been just to work verse by verse through uh, the book of Mark. Um, but felt it necessary to take um, a couple of months, probably, um, to just lay out the doctrine of the church, what Christ accomplished in it, and who we are. And I think that that's going to be essential um, in the coming days to know who we are in Christ and to know who we are as a body. Um, thus, we know where to stand and where to sit down, what to give and not what to give up. Um, so we've been spending several weeks in the, in, in the book of Ephesians particularly. Um, and we began last week in Ephesians chapter 4 and really honed in on the first few verses um, there as we talked about um, the church as a body. And today we'll pick up our reading in verse number 7 through verse number 16. So if you will, we'll stand out of reverence for the reading of God's Word. And then um, we'll pray that the Lord would bless it um, in our hearts and our minds and in our thinking and in our inner man. So Ephesians chapter 4 and verse number 7. Um, Paul writes these words um, to the church at Ephesus and um, essentially to us as well. Um, but each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he, let, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended, what does it mean? but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also he is the one who ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Let's uh, pray once again. Father, we love you, and um, we thank you, Father. We thank you for this. We thank you for the Word of God. We thank you for every promise, Father, that you've given us. We thank you, Father, for the salvation that we have in Christ. We thank you, Father, that you are the one who holds us fast, Father. We come um, to praise you. We come to glorify you, Father. We come to exalt you this morning. Um, And to do that, Father, um, we come to exalt Christ. Um, Father, we pray that as we gather together in this moment, that that would be our ultimate end. Um, that we didn't come this morning, Lord, to, um, to exalt self. We didn't come this morning even um, inherently to exalt one another, Father. Um, but we come to exalt Christ. He's our ultimate end. He's the ultimate goal. He's the one, Father, who came. He's the one um, that was exalted. He's the one that deserves all the honor, all the glory, Father, and uh, who has all the power. So, Lord, as we um, gather together uh, now as your people, Father, and gather around your word, would you just help us to be faithful? Um, Father, would you help me to be faithful? God, would you 
hide me behind Christ? Would you hide me behind the cross? Would you hide me behind the crucifixion? Would you hide me in Him, Lord? Um, and Father, would you do the same for your people? God, your, your bride is precious. Your body is precious this morning. God, so would you allow me and the opportunity to handle her with care? Father, to love her this morning as we come to the Word. Father, to say what you've said um, and to express the love, Father, that you've expressed through even um, the agency of the Apostle himself. Um, Father, would you open our ears and open our eyes to the understanding, Father, of the great mysteries of Christ. Father, would you allow us this morning at the end of the service to say with all honesty and truth um, that we love you more today because we've met together than we did yesterday. Um, Father, would you reveal something to us through your word, by your spirit, Father, that, um, that maybe we knew or didn't know, Father, but take that truth even to a deeper recesses of our souls and make it alive, Father, and give us the faith to believe um, that when we leave this place, Father, we have more um, effectual working of you in us. We have more fervency. We have more love. We have more grace. We're, we're more pure, Father, because we've met together. May we not, um, at the end of this day, um, at the end of this service, Lord, walk away from here um, the same as what we did before. Um, Father, that's not the purpose of this gathering. That's not the purpose of this meeting, Father, so may that not be the end. Um, but you, may you, Father, by the means that you've provided, uh, make us more like your son today. And um, through, the, through the teaching, through the preaching, through the gathering of God, around God's word, Father, through the prayers, through the fellowship, and through the singing of great truths, Father, um, may you make us more like Christ today. May it be evident to our wives, to our children, to our families, Lord, um, and ultimately um, to the world. May the angels even today, Father, stand back in awe because of the grace that we understand and has been revealed to us, um, yet they know not of. Uh, may we revel in that grace. May we glory in Christ today at this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. There's a danger, I believe, that all pastors fall into. When I say all, I mean all. And even myself on some days. And that's... Um, church growth movement. Um, I think it's something naturally um, that all men, maybe even yourself, particularly pastors, want some affirmation or some confirmation that God has called and that God blesses this. Um, they want the church to grow. They want the church to grow numerically. Um, so what you find in uh, many places, not only in our community, but in communities all throughout the world, and if God didn't restrain us, uh, maybe here too at this church, is that um, you would find us dig digressing um, into marketing strategies and uh, a number of other means um, simply to get people um, to come through the doors to feel comfortable. Um, and it happens in all sorts of churches. I remember being in a certain uh, circle of churches in years past um, that valued their style of worship and their style of preaching and a number of other things and even talked about them as being the original way, the old paths and getting back to that. And um, we're very judgmental towards other churches and particularly contemporary churches. And, and a lot of it was correct. Um, a lot of it was right. A lot of the criticism that was being made was, um, was true and probably needed to be preached on. 
um, because there is a growing movement um, in days past as well as today and probably in days future um, if persecution doesn't come to where uh, men will abuse Christ's bride. Um, they will seek to grow the church by their own means and their own marketing strategies and they will dress up Christ's bride in whatever way to make her uh, appear more beautiful to the world instead of um, keeping her purity um, and maintaining her faithfulness um, in the things that God has given us. But even within that group of churches, um, there was a sense of church growth movement as well. And they just branded it differently. They branded it to a southern crowd. Um, they branded it to a conservative crowd. Um, they knew the right things to say. They knew the right things to preach. They knew the right things to do um, as a pastor, as a preacher, as singers, as this or that, to move the emotions of men. Um, and they were just branding it to a different audience. Um, and that's not to say that we don't want the church to grow. You know, you read the book of Acts, man, you want the church to grow. <laughs> I mean, you can't go through the book of Acts and not think that, man, the church should be growing numerically. Whenever you read Acts chapter 2 and you read Acts chapter 3 and you read the apostles and you read the pastors and teachers and the preachers and the ministers and the evangelists that are going throughout preaching the gospel, um, one of the great desires of any godly church should be that it grows and that it grows numerically. Um, but the danger is, is to grow it numerically and to uh, digress into man-made, man-centered uh, methodologies that just to, to, to seek to get people in the door, whether it's from a contemporary or even a fundamentalist approach, to brand it towards the audience that you desire. Um, and thus create your own kingdom and dress up Christ's bride how you desire instead of keeping your pure and faithful throughout all the ages. But then you have some who go to the other extreme and are simply content with... Um, the ecclesiastical status quo. They'll even make it sound spiritual, like spiritual contentment, um, to be happy with where we're at as a church when really it's just apathy and defeat in disguise. They'll have a static view of the church. They'll be satisfied in the congregation if it manages and maintains its size and program without uh, any cutback. They have no vision of church growth, either by evangelistic outreach or by uh, maturing their members. They'll be content with visible structure of unity. But they seem to have no comparable concern uh, that the church should become a truly caring community marked by what Paul says here in verses 1 and 2. Humility, meekness, long-suffering, forbearance, and love which Christ purchased uh, for us. Some will lay great stress on the fact of the church's unity as a theological concept, and they'll preach it all day long, but, uh, but, but it doesn't appear strange to them when there's disunity all throughout the church. They just uh, hand it over to, to, to the, per, or the, the reason of uh, that we're natural and we're men and things like that will happen. Others are content with the uniformity in the church, in the life of the church, in the liturgy of the church, and it's often dull, it's boring, it's colorless, it's monotonous, and it's, um, it's dead orthodoxy. Uh, they'll never glory in the diversity of ministries or uh, which should enrich and enliven the membership of the church or the body of Christ. They'll be happy with the status quo, and they'll make it, again, sound very super spiritual and be content with where um, God has us. All such complacency, and in my opinion, is unworthy of the church's calling. In contrast to it, the apostle sets before us a picture of what we should expect and what we should embrace as a local church. Here in Ephesians chapter 4, God wants unity in His church, and God wants His church to grow. He wants Christ's Bible church to grow. 
When we say that, we're not really talking, again, about more bodies. Although, um, I think that whenever we are what God desires for us to be, more bodies will come. And that, that He'll give us a desire for evangelism. And that Christ would receive the nations. And that Christ would receive Kingsport for His honor and His glory. Um, but ultimately, the task of the New Testament church... Um, is in Ephesians chapter 4, is not speaking of church growth movement as numerically or quantitatively, but as qualitatively. He wants us to grow, and He wants us to grow in maturity and in unity and in truth and in Christ-likeness and in knowledge of Him and in grace. And that's His purpose in the church. That is what we should grow into um, as we think about the body of Christ. And that's exactly what the apostle here teaches us. And that when Christ redeems His bride and buys people out of the world, He does it uh, not only just individually but corporately. He brings them together. And as they come together um, in that essential nature, the, see, see the gathering of God's people is essential. That's actually what He bought. He didn't just buy an individual. He bought a church. He bought a bride. He bought a body. Uh, these, these corporate unities. He bought a building. He bought a flock. He bought this and he bought that. And these illustrations are to teach us that, that, that when we um, come to Christ, we come to Him um, not only as an individual and experience the grace that He has bestowed upon us in Christ um, individually, but also corporately. That much of Christ's presence is experienced and manifested um, in the gathering of God's people and in the relationships and the fellowship and in the exhortations between one another. As we gather together and we pray corporately, as we gather together and we sing corporately, as we gather together and we take the ordinances corporately, as we gather together and we receive God's Word corporately from all these different avenues, we can truly say at the end of the day that uh, and tomorrow whenever we gather with other people and we, we go to work and we talk with our family, we we can faithfully and accurately say that yesterday or today we met with Christ. Why? Because His presence is among us. And that's what we're advocating for throughout this series, that it is essential because this is who we are. It's not something that we do. Now, when we gather together as God's people, we do this because we are, not because we like, you know, or because this is good, or because um, this is a great attachment, or man, this really benefited me, or this or that. We gather together because this is who we are. We do what we do because ultimately Christ made us what we are. And we are a body. We are a bride. We are a flock. We are this. We are His. And this is a manifestation of that glory that was birthed in Christ's mind, in the Trinity's mind, in, in, in eternity. And 2,000 years ago was solidified in the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the ascension of Christ. Thus, this is what He bought. This is what He paid for right here and out there. And it's to be brought in here and we are to gather um, within this congregation as a body. And we looked at what the body meant in part in the past couple of weeks. I mean, it means that there's authority. That's why it's often referred to uh, the, the head of the body. And we see that even here. That Christ is the authority. And that just like in a body, um, not only is there authority, but when all parts come under the authority of that head, there's unity. Even in the midst of diversity, there is tremendous unity and agreement as we come together as one new man. It doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or you're a Gentile or you're a woman or you're a man or you're a bond or you're free or your social status is high or it's low or you're black or you're white. Um, the, the thing that brings us together um, and the thing that unifies us is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, what He accomplished on our behalf. So we're not seeking uniformity at this church, you know? And I know you look around and you see a lot of uniformity. That's not the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is unity in the midst of diversity. That, that we're not here to start a, a Christian club. 
You know, we're not here to start a Christian conservative club. We're here because Jesus Christ died for our souls, made us something that we're not, brought us into new life, and thus placed us within a body to honor Him, to come under His authority, and to unify under that head for the purpose of glorifying God uh, and, and preaching the gospel to a lost and a dying world. Well, how does that happen? Right? What is Paul's theology of church growth? Um, is, it, is it to digress into man-made, man-centered, and to make man the ultimate center of the church? Therefore, to give, him, give ourselves over to, 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 to marketing strategies and man-made tactics to reach and to get, to get people to come in? Um, I don't think so. And is it also to be just content with the ecclesiastical status quo that, that you know, uh, there, there's some virtue in, in you know, five years being exactly the same as we are today? You know, and we just we we discount it and say that that's a spiritual thing. Why? Because we're in the last days, man, and um, and the church is going to wax and it's going to it's going to wane more and more. And as darkness overtakes us and overwhelms us, um, then we're going to see the church continue to digress and become smaller and smaller. Therefore, we come and and we discount that. Is Jesus Christ not King today? You know. Is he not seated at the right hand of God the Father and with all authority? He said, go into all the world and to preach the gospel. Did he not give decrees and commands to the church um, that it should grow until he comes? Because if that be the case, then we are to come under the authority um, of Christ today in unity with the body in the midst of all of our diversity and carry out his mission and his commission in the world seeking that growth um, both numerically, but, but, but more than that, Paul's church growth movement um, was internally. You know, it was within the body. That was his theology. He believed that the church should grow because that's what Christ purchased upon the cross. So that when we talk about church growth in, in, in inherently, it begins here. It begins here. It begins with you. It begins with me. It begins with pastors and teachers. It begins with um, members within the pew. And as they grow internally and as the body strengthens, inevitably it will spill out into the world as Christ gives us desires to go and to be and to do. Um, and many churches get that backwards. Many churches, you know, as soon as a convert comes to Christ, let's get them out and get them preaching the gospel. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that. Um, but there's a, there's a reason that the apostle lays qualifications upon men and he says they shouldn't be a new convert if they're going to lead in such things like that. Um, why? Because pride and a bunch of other things can well up in you and totally disqualify you. There's a lot of ignorance that goes on. Um, so I'm not saying that we shouldn't evangelize. We definitely should. And I'm going to say that, 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 that church growth from God's perspective, and even numerically, uh, people being saved by the grace of God through biblical evangelistic techniques grows out of a strong and a healthy body who is healthy internally. And you know that. You know that. We live in the South. We know what it's like to be unhealthy. We know what it's like to eat a bunch of junk all day long. And as your body ages and grows, you know, you create and cultivate these habits as a young man that you can't sustain any longer. Why? Because the body is mortal, you know. And that a decade put up on your belly um, definitely affects the way and the activity that you are and, um, and weakens your body and weakens your ability. Um, that what I, I'm arguing for and what I, I believe is the problem is, is, is that this spiritual um, illustration as it transposes over on the church, I believe that, that many churches and maybe ours and maybe you as an individual um, lacks the desire to go into the world and preach the gospel for a number of reasons, but it could be because of an unhealthy body. 
And it could be because of an unhealthy individual. That, that, that there's a need for strengthening for stamina. There is a need for strengthening for labor. Have you ever noticed how athletes, you know, um, they don't get tired. They have a freedom on the field. They have a freedom in the water. They have a freedom um, in, in whatever area of expertise that, that they have given themselves over and disciplined themselves for because they have a freedom that you and I don't have, you know. We often look at freedom, and we think that to cast off all activity is, and to do what I want is ultimate freedom. But in that, we, we enter into a bondage of slavery. Why? Because, because we give ourselves over to nothing, then we can actually do nothing. But a man who disciplines himself or a woman who disciplines himself in certain activities such as running, you know, have a freedom to run for miles that you and I don't have. You know, the man who's given himself over to playing the piano or the cello or the guitar has a freedom upon the frets or the keys that you and I will never know. A freedom to compose, a freedom to be, a freedom to do things with labor, um, with zealousness and, and stamina that you and I have no idea. Therefore, they will do things that you and I never will. Why? Because we indulged in our freedom to be lazy. But as we discipline ourselves and become stronger internally, it allows us a freedom to do things within the world um, and, and, and even a desire to do that, that that ultimately we would not have. That Paul is arguing for church growth, not um, explicitly um, outwardly, although that is a necessary, um, that, that will be a necessary conclusion of what happens internally. Why? Because the stronger that a man comes on the inside, the more that he desires to be and to do. And that's exactly what you see. That Paul's emphasis here on church growth is not externally, but internally within the body of Christ. So let's look at that for just a few, few moments. And last week we looked at the unity in chapter 4 and verses 1 through 3 that God desires, that Paul encourages us to keep. Why? Because Jesus Christ Himself bought it with His own blood. Thus you and I should be unified, Right? I mean, it's more than just a good idea or, you know, let's get along to get along because it works out better and we can do ministry uh, more peacefully that way. No, Jesus Christ is actually, Paul argues in Ephesians, He is our peace. And that He brings Jew and Gentile together and in the cross He died to purchase unity. Thus, Jesus Christ desires unity, so church, give Him unity. Not only that, but in verses 4 through 6, you see that there's one body, one spirit, uh, one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, and is above all, through all, and in you all. That unity within the body is also rooted and grounded not only in the purchase of redemption by Christ's blood, but also in the very character and nature of God. That you should be one. And that was Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17. That He prayed for you and me and for the church at large throughout all the ages to be unified even as the Father is with the Son. That there's a, a unity um, among the persons of the Trinity. That they're, they're unified in one purpose and, 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 and as three persons and they, they come together to accomplish um, in time and reality um, these things. The same should be true for us. Why? Because we are in Christ. Thus, we should be unified because it's the very character and nature of God. And you begin to see the result of that in verse number 7. What does he say? He says, But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And the emphasis shifts here from corporate nature to, uh, in the text to, to individual graces. That what you find out is that God not only buys unity as a corporate body, but also um, grace, that, that unity is secured by the grace that He extends to each one of us as individuals. Um, and you see it move from, from the corporate nature, but to each one of us. 
Um, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And I think that the grace, and this is going to, Paul's going to build an argument, so hang on with me. Um, that, that, that the grace that is speak, spoken of here is not, great, is not saving grace, but it, I believe that it is serving grace. Uh, for example, in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse number 2, you read these words. If indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you. That Paul argues that, that yes, there is a saving grace that is totally a gift in Ephesians chapter number 2. And then Ephesians chapter number 3 builds upon that and he speaks about a stewardship that God had given him, particularly among the Gentiles. That that was the mystery revealed to the church. That Paul was going to be the apostle, the minister um, to the ends of the earth to the Gentiles. Why? Because that was always God's plan. To die and to receive the nations for Himself. Hence, revelation. Every nation, tribe, and tongue will be gathered around Him. Thus, with all authority in heaven and earth, Paul, go. You know, Christ Bible Church, go. Like, reach the nations. Reach your community for the cause of Christ. And for particularly the apostle... He gives them and extends to him a stewardship, a household is what that means. A, a, an operation of government. It's like you and I, we have our own households. And within that household, we have a governing um, uh, responsibility, particularly as men and women, as husband and wife. Um, and, and it plays out differently depending upon um, the role and responsibility. But I have responsibility within my house, not yours, not yours, but mine, right? That God has given me. I'm not necessarily to walk over and to be in your house. Um, as a father or as a, a mother or as a child or this or that, God's given me my house that I am to work in and to take care of my wife and my family. In a similar way, Paul says, I've got my house, my wheelhouse, that God has extended me grace, not you, um, inherently, that you're not to be me. You know, I think that we want to do that a lot. We want to look at other people and we want to see, we see the grace that God has extended to them and we, we glory in it. And we want to be that, but, but the point of this passage is, is that Paul says, that was given to me. And Paul says in chapter 4 and verse number 7, that God gave you grace. He gave you a stewardship. He gave you a household. He gave you serving grace. If you're in Christ today, you have amazing grace that was extended to you in Him. But He didn't just save you to take you to eternity. He saved you um, to become a workmanship for Him. To be um, in, in, invested um, in this world. And primarily that investment um, takes place within the family of God, within the household of God, um, within the church of God. So Paul here is talking about a grace that as a result of salvation is extended to anyone who is in Him. And that you and I all have a household. In some sense, there's an infusion of serving grace that every one of God's trophies um, have because of saving grace. You could go to 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7, and you would see that to each one of us is given particular gifts and certain graces. Why? For the common good. Um, uh, Romans chapter number, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, verse number 4, um, just reinforces that and speaks of the Spirit of God um, giving the, the graces and distributing those graces to all of God's people regardless of um, their ethnicity, regardless of their gender, regardless of this or that. That, that, that every person that is saved... Romans chapter 12 and verse number 3. Grace is given to us. Um, and that's exactly what he's arguing. That Paul is talking about a special grace that accompanies the gifts given to the church. And each individual within it is to carry out that calling of service in the church. Um, you see the word measure here. Uh, verse, uh, verse number 7. But each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Jesus is the grand distributor of all the divine gifts. Not everyone has all of the gifts. Not everyone has all of the grace. It's measured out. 
And by necessity, we learn that this, is, um, that this grace is somewhat limited, um, which teaches us the reality that although every individual is given grace to serve and every individual is given grace to be saved, not only now but ultimately etern- eternally, it's given out proportionately according to God's standard and God's rule and what He desires in each and every man, woman, and child that comes to Him. It's proportionately measured out, thus that at the end of the day, it's created in such a fashion and measured out that we would all depend upon each other. That's what you see in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse number 16. Uh, From what the whole body joined and knit together by every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth. Uh, within the body for the edifying of itself in love. That grace is given to each one of us, that no one in Christ's church misses out on Christ's bounty. And I say that because some of you may feel like you have been um, second-handed. You know? Some of you may feel like um, God didn't extend to you a grace to serve within the body. Um, you may feel like you have, you know, that you are uh, the stepchild, that others have been adopted into the family and that they've been loved and God has just poured out glorious grace upon them. Um, but what Paul is teaching here is that that is not the case. Um, that, God, that, that, that this brings out the glorious equality in the body of Christ. That we know that we're all one in Christ in eternity, but the reality is to be lived out here. That that, that, that that eternal truth of the unity of the body as it stands around the throne of God one day is to be manifested here in this local congregation as we carry out that unity and diversity um, according to the measure of grace that God has extended to each and every one of us. There is not one single person that has been saved by the grace of God and born into His family that does not have a gift of grace to be used particularly for the body of Christ. And this should, be, should create a contentment within our heart. Why? Because Christ is ultimately the giver of the gifts. And I'm not talking about natural gifts. Um, I'm talking about God-given supernatural endowments of His grace. Right? A lot of us come together to, the, to God's people and we use natural gifts. man. And God's given some of you and some of us um, some phenomenal natural gifts. That whenever we become saved by the grace of God, He sanctifies those and we use those for His glory. But we're talking about supernatural endowments that outside of Christ you do not and cannot have. Why? Because you do not have Him. That Jesus saved us, each one of us, um, not just simply to bring us to glory, but that we would serve within the family of God according to the measure that He has measured out to us. Uh, John Stott, um, Christian of days past, says, Although there is one body, one faith, and one family, this unity is not to be misconstrued as a lifeless uniformity. We are not to imagine that every Christian is an exact replica of the other, as if we had all been mass-produced in some celestial factory. On the contrary, the unity of the church, far from being boringly monotonous, is exciting in its diversity. And this is not just because of our different cultures, temperaments, and personalities, but because of the different gifts which Christ distributes for the enrichment of our common life. And I can remember going to seminary, and seminary would just pump out preachers, one like another. And I remember my old pastor telling me that when he went to seminary in probably the 70s, um, that they would have you mimic and, 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 and even preach like another pastor or another preacher, and you'd even get your, your little shtick, your thing that people would recognize you and remember you by and, And they would just be mass-producing in these seminaries, some of them anyway, uh, men and just pumping out cookie-cutter pastors and cookie-cutter preachers. And you know what? We fall into that too. I fall into that too. 
You know, if you, if you listen to me really well and ask me who I was listening to this last week, uh, it might very well uh, sound a lot like that person, you know. Um, and that's why I've tried to listen to a lot of different men and I've tried to read the Bible even more. Why? So that I could be what God has desired for me to be. Not what some other pastor is or some other... We look at the grace and the fruit of so many ministries or so many people and we think, man, if I could just mimic that, then God would just glorify Himself in me. But, 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 but inherently, that's a, 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 a slap in the face of God and the grace that He's extended to you. He didn't call you. He didn't call me to be this other person. He didn't call us as a church to be like um, this Baptist church down the road or that Baptist church. And we raise up these standards... Um, within Christ's body. And we measure ourselves to those things. But Paul is arguing here that you're not to measure yourself according to those things. That you were given a measure of grace in Christ, purchased by Him, that you are to walk into. And that's the only worthy walk for the Christian. That that's our goal. You say, are you sure about this? (laughs) Yes, I'm sure. Is this important? Yes, it's important. You say, why? Why? Because of verses 8 through 10. And I'm not going to go into the depth of verses 8 through 10. Um, there's a lot of different theories on that, on exactly the ascension and the descension and, and heaven and hell and where he went and all this. I'm going to give you a summary of what I believe um, the point of verses 8 through 10 are. I believe that Paul, um, in eight, he says, therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and he gave gifts to men. Now this, He ascended, what does it mean? But also that He first descended in the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also He who ascended far above all the heavens that He might fill all things. Again, there's a lot of issues um, that people have with this passage of Scripture. There's a lot of disputes. But I think the thing that is not up for dispute is the quotation. You may have a Bible that has this in italics in verse number 8. Or you may have a Bible that it's, it's bold or it's um, all capital letters because it's a quotation from Psalm chapter number 68. In Psalm chapter number 68, you read these words. Uh, Verse number 18. Let's start in verse number 17. He says, The chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of thousands. The Lord is among them as, as in Sinai, in the holy place. You have ascended on high. You have led captivity captive. You have received gifts among men, even from the rebellious, that the Lord God might dwell there. Again, there's a lot of dispute over that passage and exactly what that means. You know, in the time that Paul is writing it, Jewish, believe, or Jewish believers as well as Jewish unbelievers. Um, so, so Jews who became Christians and, and Jews that were not Christians but had maintained their Judaism um, believed that this was talking about Moses going up to Mount Sinai and as he ascended, he descended with the law or with the gifts. Um, I believe that, that Paul applies this directly to the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are some discrepancies between the two. For example, Psalm chapter 68 says that he received gifts. Ephesians chapter 4 says that he gave gifts. Many people just totally discount that. Many people say Paul just got it wrong, that he had a bad memory, um, this or that. Um, I believe personally that Paul is expounding upon the truth and the reality of um, Psalm chapter number 68, and I'll tell you why. Psalm 68 is a divine warrior psalm. The idea is that God is a warrior that triumphs. His triumphs are demonstrated in the Exodus, in Sinai, in the wilderness wanderings, and in the conquest of Canaan. And this psalm celebrates God's victory and return to heaven. The imagery is that God comes down, gains the victory, 
triumphs for His people and ascends back up into glory. The idea of the conquest is to receive tribute to do what? That would be the question. So if he's, if he's, if he's, 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 he's taking the conquest, he's defeating the people, um, he's, he's, he's vanquishing all of his foes, for what reason? To receive tribute for what? To in turn around and give that tribute back to the people. Um, in Numbers chapter 8, um, if you have your Bible, I'd encourage you to turn there. Numbers chapter 8, I think you'll see um, kind of the same model in Numbers um, and you thought nothing good could come out of numbers. Uh, there's all kinds of stuff in numbers. Keep it up. Keep moving through your Bible reading plan and take some time. But in Numbers chapter number 8, um, for your reading at home, I would say read the whole passage 6 through 19. But for time's sake, I'm going to read, begin with verse 6, jump to 14, and then 18. But in Numbers chapter number 8, in verse number 6, you read these words. That's verse number five. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, take the Levites from among the children of Israel and cleanse them ceremonially. And then in verse number 14, you read these words. Thus you shall separate the Levites from among the children of Israel and the Levites shall be mine. My translation is capital letter because it's God speaking. Uh, Moses is is giving God's word and, and he's saying that that um, you'll separate the Levites from among you, the children of Israel, and the Levites shall be mine or be God's. And then you come to verse number 18 and you read this. I have taken the Levites instead of all the firstborn of the children of Israel, and I have given the Levites as a gift to Aaron and his sons from among the children of Israel to do, um, to, 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 to do the work of the children of Israel in the tabernacle of meeting and to make atonement for the children of Israel, that there be no plague among the children of Israel when the children of Israel come near the sanctuary. And the idea is this, that in the passage where God is sanctifying the Levites, remember a priesthood uh, for the nation of Israel, um, that, that He is sanctifying the Levites for service, that He says He will take the Levites for Himself and that He will cleanse them. Why? So that they will be His. And that they will be sanctified and set apart. And then He will take them and in turn give them back as a gift to Aaron and the sons of Israel as a service in the ministry. So what does He do? He takes apart a people for Himself, a priesthood, and He gives them back to the nation. Why? For the service of the nation as they are His within it. Not only that, but He quotes Psalm 68, which at the time of Christ. Um, Christians believe, and it's in rabbinical literature, that Jewish liturgy related this to the Feast of Pentecost. That the Jews, by the time of Christ, understood Psalm 68, um, or at least in their own interpretation, to be speaking of Moses, who ascended to Mount Sinai, brought back the law down to the nation. But here Paul could be alluding to the fact that it's not Moses who brings down the Torah, but it's Jesus who ascends, sends forth His Spirit, which is, of course, what happened when? In Acts chapter 2, at Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, in verse number 33, you read these words. Therefore being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He poured out that which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool. You say, what am I saying? I'm saying that that God has won the ultimate triumph through His Son. 
And that He has been exalted to the right hand of God the Father. And that the Father, in a sense, says to the Son, as the Son receives the Spirit as a gift, and He sends that Spirit back to the people. He pours out that Spirit and enables the church to be what the church is supposed to be in the world. But essentially, He gives it, and the church is to be a priesthood, a new nation, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, of which God is their God and the people are are gods. That Jesus Christ entered into the world, He descended in a sense. And when He ascended, He descended once again to give gifts to men. Just like in the Levitical priesthood, that He sets aside a people for Himself to give them back to the nation. That Jesus Christ enters into the world, purchases by His own blood um, gifts for men, and whenever He ascends on high, um, we know that His ascension has happened and His resurrection was complete um, whenever the Spirit comes down and empowers the people of God to carry out the ministry. And thus the Spirit of God is uh, poured out upon all flesh. Joel says that the Spirit of God in those days would be poured out in the last days upon all the flesh, upon every man, woman, or child who comes to Christ, upon all the nations. And that He would empower them with gifts that were given to them by God to carry out the ministry within the nation or within the church. I think that's the idea. That that's the divine agenda. That in order for that to happen, Christ gives us gifts. And He gives gifts to the church for a particular purpose. That those gifts would be a blessing to His people. That with ministers for growth, Um, ultimately Jesus was buying people to give back to His people. That's the idea. That Jesus' blood purchased gifts that He would in turn, according to His Spirit, give back to His people for their own benefit. And that's exactly what you see carried on in Ephesians chapter number 4. Because He picks back up in verse number 11. And He Himself gave, right? So He receives gifts. By the purchase of His own blood, the Father honors the sacrifice, gives Him gifts. He gives those gifts back to the people, to the priesthood. Why? For their own benefit to worship and to grow. What are those gifts? Well, here, um, the gifts are people. He gave some to be apostles. He gave some to be prophets. He gave some to be evangelists and some pastors. And He gave some to be teachers. That is, gifts are men. The apostles and prophets lay the foundation, Ephesians 2.21, for the church. Evangelists are more than just itinerant preachers, but more like missionaries are going to go to the um, unreached people groups and pioneer uh, men like Philip. But it's also in the context of the local church and the local congregation as Timothy is instructed to be an evangelist. Um, Apostles and prophets laying the foundation and evangelists, pastors, and teachers carrying on the work. Um, Particularly pertaining to us, pastors and teachers. The pastors and teachers are a gift to the church. They are servant leaders who oversee and pastor the flock of God. They're not superhuman saints with impeccable um, character or qualities, but they are saved men by the grace of God who are mature enough to be examples to the flock, to pastor the flock, to live for the flock, to die for the flock, um, to govern the flock, to protect the flock, to preach to the flock, to lead the flock care for the flock, to counsel the flock, to disciple the flock, and to discipline the flock. And that's why in many places you see the exhortation to pastors and preachers to care for the flock of God, such as in Acts 20, 28, and in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse number 1. That when Jesus Christ um, descended and ascended, 
That he leaves for his church a, a priesthood, a ministerial group of men whom he calls and he qualifies and pours his spirit out upon and gives them special grace to lead and to govern the flock of God. Um, why? For their own benefit. For their own benefit. Um, why? Verse number 12. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. You come to this passage and you see why God, why Jesus Christ, what He purchased and why He purchased it. Why give, why give men to the church? Why give apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers? For the perfecting of the saints. You may have a passage that says for the equipping of the saints. There's a couple different views on this portion of Scripture and I'm just going to say it quickly. Um, some believe that these three works are completely and totally for the pastor. Um, if you had a King James translation, you would read for the equipping of the perfecting of the saints, comma, for the work of the ministry, comma, for the edifying of the body of Christ. And I've held to this view at different times, and I believe this is a tenable view. Um, but I don't believe that that's the view anymore. I believe that the view here is that the purpose of the pastors and teachers is for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry. And if you have a New King James Version, or you have an ESV, or you have another version, um, you may read something like that. He gave them, why, for, to, for the perfecting, equipping of the saints to accomplish the work of the ministry. You may have one that says He gave for the purpose of preparing God's people for the work of ministry. But the argument here is that Christ ascends on high, descends, gives His life on Calvary, ascends back up, the Father blesses, just pours out gifts on the Son. And where the Son says, these are not all for me, he pours out His Spirit and He gives gifts to men. Acts chapter 2. Comes down at Pentecost and He equips the church for the ministry that God has given them within the congregation. Um, why? For the purpose of the congregation. To equip them. To perfect them. Um, the term equip, it, means, it literally means to mature. To put right. Um, that the pastor teacher... Um, is given. The pastor and the teachers of the church are given to the church. Why? Because people who are saved by the grace of God aren't perfected yet. And neither are the pastors or teachers. The term put right, it literally could, uh, it was used in uh, many places to speak of a broken bone. It was a medical term. You know, and you, you have to wonder where Paul's getting a lot of this stuff from. It may be his friend Luke, the physician. Um, as he talks and uses these medical terms and he uses the illustration of the body to teach us what we are as the body of Christ. But literally, the idea is, is that I'm saving people and extending to them a saving grace and a serving grace. But it's not made fully right yet. So I'm going to give to the church um, a ministerial group of men who can mature them and die for them and live for them so that they can be what Christ desires for them to be. The word is also used in Matthew chapter 4, speaking of nets. Um, James and John are found on a boat mending their nets, um, perfecting their nets. It speaks of something that is lacking, something that needs further growth, something that needs restoration. Um, it's also used in Galatians chapter 6 and verse number 1, speaking of a man who's overtaken by sin. And what does the church do? He's to restore, he's to perfect, he's to make right, he's to receive considering yourself lest you be also be tempted. That's the idea. If something is not right, we need to set it right. So Jesus Christ dies. He purchases a, 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 serve, a saving as well as a serving grace. Gives it to the church. Um, gives it to who? The saints. Pastors are, and teachers are not 
primarily for the lost. They're for the church. The ministry of the church exists primarily for the work of the saints. That they are to give themselves over as Paul encourages Timothy to work of evangelism. But for the most part, the idea is, is the body's not right. It's not unified. It has needs. Therefore, young man, um, elderly man, a group of elders, teachers, come together and give yourself for Christ's bride following in Christ's example. Um, he is the quip. They are to give themselves to perfect. Who? The saints. Um, and the idea is that grace is given to us. But also the ministry is given to you. That's the idea. Particular gifts have been given to the body by virtue of serving grace. And that the ministry has been given to you. That's the idea. That's what I'm promoting today. This is what I'm proposing. That God has called me and other men that will come alongside me in the future for the purpose of equipping and perfecting the saints for the work of the ministry. That the work of the ministry is not to fall upon one man or a group of men or a small spiritual elite within the church. That the ministry is actually given to the entirety of the church. That you are called to minister and you are called to serve. And that's what the term ministry literally means. Don't think of the term ministry here in some, uh, again, ecclesiastical elite group of clergy um, who are given over to this special grace um, and they're the ones to lead 90% of the work um, for the congregation in God's work. They're to give themselves 100%, no doubt. But so are you. That's the idea. That the term work, it literally means in the original language, work. <laughs> it's hard, you know? That what Jesus Christ saves you to and what Jesus Christ saves me to is not a life of leisure and laziness. But He calls us to a work. That's why He extended to us not only saving grace, but serving grace. That's why His blood was poured out to purchase a church that would labor for Him in the world. And that Christ gives gifts um, to men, to the church, for the perfecting of the church. Why? So that the church is a body in unity, even in the midst of diversity, would enter into the world and among itself and do the work of Christ. That term ministry, it literally just means service. That's all it means. It could be rightfully translated that. It comes from the word, we get our word deacon, diaconos. I mean, it literally just means table waiter. That Jesus Christ dies for the world, dies for the church, gives gifts so that we could equip you for the work of service. It simply just means waiting tables. It simply means serving. It means that the grace was given to you so that you would serve within the congregation of the church. That ministry, you may think, looks like a preacher on a Sunday morning, a teacher behind a lectern in a Sunday school, and it does. But it also looks like encouraging one another. It also looks like embracing your gifts. It also looks like extending grace to others. It looks like maybe this morning shoveling snow, preparing a meal, paying a bill, visiting someone, encouraging them with Scripture, praying with someone who's sick or hurt and in need, giving someone a place to say, borrowing a car, helping someone move, teaching someone a skill, sharing wisdom, helping with children outside of church or maybe in the midst of a service, calling someone on the phone, being a godly father, being a godly mother, being a faithful husband, being a loving wife, being a faithful friend to come alongside other faithful fathers, 
other faithful mothers, other people within the, co- the congregation. It means being a consistent church member. It means keeping covenant with the, the people whom you've covenanted with. It means being a man of your word. It means walking in Christ, like Christ, for the purpose of honoring and glorifying and displaying Christ to a lost and a dying world. That there's a danger of restricting the idea of ministry and acts of service to an elite group of people in which you cultivate a church culture um, where uh, 95% of the work is being done by one man or a group of men while 5% of the people are, are, um, are, are receiving um, the labors. That was never the purpose of Christ. And that was never the purpose of the church. I want to read to you a beautiful statement. It's a little long, but also John Stott. I couldn't say it any better. He says, the former expression about equipping God's people is of far-reaching significance for any true understanding of Christian ministry. For the word ministry is here used not to describe the work of pastors inherently, but rather the work of a so-called laity, that is, of all God's people without exception. Here is intro-convertible, inconvertible, I can't even say it, Evidence that the New Testament envisages ministry not as a prerogative of a clerical elite, but as a privileged calling of all the people of God. Thank God that in our generation, the biblical vision of an every member ministry is taking a firm hold in the church. He goes on to say, It does not mean that there is no distinctive pastoral ministry left for the clergy. There is. Rather, it establishes its character. The New Testament concept of a pastor is not a person who jealously guards all ministry in his own hands. You know, that can be a very dangerous thing. It, it, couldn't, it may not, and it, it probably not even the fault of the pastors uh, or, or of the church. It could very much be the fault of the pastor who wants to guard the ministry for himself and lead the way. But he goes on to say the New Testament concept of a pastor is not a person who jealously guards all ministry in his own hands and successfully squashes all lay, lay initiatives but of one who helps and encourages all God's people to discover, develop, and exercise their gifts. His teaching and training are directed to this end, to enable the people of God to be a servant people, ministering actively but humbly according to the gifts in a world of alienation and pain. Thus, instead of monopolizing on all ministry himself, he actually multiplies ministries. What model of the church then should we keep in our minds, he says? The traditional model is that of a pyramid with a pastor perched precariously on its pinnacle like a little pope in his own church while the laity are arrayed beneath him in serried ranks of inferiority. It is a totally unbiblical image because the New Testament envisages envisages not a single pastor with a docile flock, both a plural oversight and every member ministry. Not much better is is the model of the bus in which the pastor does all the driving while the congregation or the passengers slumbering in peaceful security behind him. Quite different from either the pyramid or the bus is the biblical model of the body. The church is the body of Christ, every member of which has a distinctive function. Although the body metaphor can certainly accommodate the concept of a distinct pastorate, there is simply no room in it either for hierarchy or for that kind of bossy clericalism which concentrates all ministry in the hands of one man and denies the people of God their own rightful ministries. That's the idea. That the church is not a single man or a single uh, entity ministry. Um, It is the, the entirety of the people of God 
coming together as the people of God to the ultimate end of glorifying, honoring Christ, that that's the ultimate end in view. You go on and you see that that's the goal. What are the goal? What's the goal of the, the, the gifts, the pastors, the teachers, those that God has placed in the church? To edify, to build up, to make right, to equip the people of God for the work of the ministry. Why? So that they can edify the body of Christ. Until when? Until we all come to the unity of the faith. You see? That's how we strive for unity. That's how we strive for unity of the faith. Through the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man. It could literally be a fully mature man is the idea. Not someone who is um, perfect in the sense of no sin um, or no disparages. But that he would become like Christ, a new man, a perfect man, to the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ. That we would no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love, that we would grow up into all things, into him who is the head. That's the idea. That that's what a body is. You say, we want unity. How do we do that? A lot of that falls on me. I was just going to tell you, this is a, this is a sermon to me. You know? Like pastors, like you were given for this reason. Why? For the purpose of giving yourself like Christ gave Himself for the church. You love the bride in such a way that you, that you become a servant and you wash people's feet and you give yourself over day in and day out to the people of God to equip them for the work of the ministry. And when am I done, Lord? When they become like Jesus Christ. A new man. A man fully mature. Well, how do I know that they're fully mature? They're not carried away to and fro by every wind of doctrine. You've equipped them by the preaching of the Word of God and by counseling ministry and by by teaching them how to embrace the grace that God has given them in serving Christ within the body such that um, they're speaking the truth in love. They're literally, the term there could be just truthing in love. You know? Um, And it looks like this. They grow up into the head of Jesus Christ from whom the whole body joined and knit together by which every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth um, of the body for the edifying of itself in love. The idea is this, that Jesus Christ is the head. Not only is the head in authority, but He is the source of all life for the church. And that the pastor, the teachers are to come alongside the congregation as Christ comes alongside them and teach them how to abide in Christ such that life just pours out of them. They embrace the service that Christ has given them, not only within their families, but within the church and within the community. And they are so joined together in unity because they are mature in Christ that they actually, um, they, they actually contribute to the edifying of the body itself in love. That the body is an amazing thing. Isn't it amazing when you get a cut on your hand or a bruise or this or that? It's only a matter of time before what? The body heals itself. Right? See, what does unity look like? What does a mature man in Christ, what does a mature church look like? It looks like a church that just loves itself. Not itself in a sense of a self-exaltation way, but each individual member of the church recognizes that God gave them a special gift that Jesus Christ died for it, gave it to the church um, such that they are to utilize that gift not for themselves, but for the common good or for the church. 
That when Jesus Christ ascended on high and He gave His own blood, He purchased gifts for you and grace for you such that you would walk in it in the life of the church. That you are being fitted. It literally means to be shaped. And you are being joined together. That Jesus Christ is making you, fitting you, shaping you for something. What is that thing? Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 that you are to be joined together um, as a building. Lively stones have come together um, to be fitted together. That in the diversity, uh, and even in that picture of the building, it's not like you know, a, a, a five by six stone or whatever and everybody's the same. It's like the old castles that were made with an oblong shaped stone and this and that and they were put together and fitted together to make this one building, this dwelling place of God. Paul is saying that, 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 that Pastor Damon, like, run after them. Why? Because my son died for them. And he gave them things that they need to know that they have. And that those things are to be embraced by them and equip them and teach them and show them and live for them and die for them so that they know that they have a place here. Shape them by the power of the Spirit and put them together. And I'll put them together in such a way um, that they are held together by ligaments and they actually supply the need one for another. That that's the idea. That they are bound together by ligaments, they are bound together by love. And that love is the ultimate expression, the ultimate ethic within the body. According to the activity of each individual part. That's the idea in uh, verse number 16. That each part plays a role that they must perform within the body. Each part contributes to the growth of the body. Each person has something to do within the body. That Christ made you, shapes you, puts you in the body for that reason. Why? And what's the, what's the ultimate end? That the body would build itself ultimately up in love. That as each part of the body does its part, it causes the body to grow. The purpose being the building up or the edifying up of the body of Christ in love. That growth, Paul's theology of church growth, is a theology of love manifested in every part. It is not identified as numerical growth, but the growth spoken of here is the growth of edification in love. One writer puts it this way. He says, he, speaking of Christ, is at work fitting and joining the whole body together. He provides sustenance to it through every contact according to the needs of each and every single part. He enables the body to make its own growth so that it builds itself up in love. That maturity is the goal. And that maturity comes through adherence to the truth that results in love. You would say, as we examine ourselves as a body, and I, I do that often, examine my own self. You say, have we attained to that? Are we living out Ephesians chapter 4? say, how do we know? What's Paul's criteria? Does this body permeate with Christian love? That's it. You know, some people want to hold the standard of truth. And that's a good standard. But it's interesting that the building up of the body of Christ is a strengthening in love, not a strengthening in truth. And listen to me for just a moment because some of you think I'm a heretic when I say that. Um, but it's not because the two really... Love is born out of truth that is embraced by faith. So, so the standard can't be truth alone. 
Because when you go to Revelation chapter 2, you meet a church that is, 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 is enamored in, in sound doctrine. But it's, a, but it's a, a, a church that is inevitably digressing down that, uh, that decline and declining into heresy and heterodoxy and a number of other uh, sins. Why? Because they had lost their first love. The source of their ministry was no longer the fountainhead of Christ. And it was evident by the lack of love that they had for the gospel and the lack of love that they had for one another. That the ultimate evidence of maturity within a body is truth that is adhered to by faith such that it produces love not only in one person or in a small group of people, but the entirety of the church. Such that whenever the church is hurt, whenever it's injured, whenever it's this or it's that, that the church runs to the aid. That it's an every member ministry. That it's an every member ministry. That Christian love is the ultimate ethic and the mark of the disciples of Jesus Christ. It was Paul who said, let all things be done in love. It was Jesus who said, they will know me and that you are, they will know that you are my disciples by the love that you have for one another. It was Paul to Ephesians who said, you were chosen to be holy and blameless in love. He, he, he prayed that Christ would dwell in their hearts and by faith in love. He tells us to love and to forbear with one another and that we are to walk in Ephesians chapter 5 in love. That love ends up being the very lifeblood and the body life of body growth as the church um, grows, as it adheres and has faith in the truth of God's Word. It's not carried away by everything else. It keeps its focus and, and, and grows and the lifeblood of it grows out of Jesus Christ as they grow up into him and become like him and understand that it was love according to truth that provoked him to come into the world and give his only life willfully um, on the cross and, and, and undergo the wrath of God for the sake of sinners like you and me. And that should be the ultimate ethic of this church. That should be the ultimate ethic of this church. That's the church growth movement. That's it. That's it. So Christ's immediate purpose in giving a pastors and teachers to a church through the ministries to equip them in all these varied ministries. The ultimate purpose is to build up the body, the church. Clearly the way the whole body grows is for all of its members to use their God-given gifts according to the Spirit of God, according to truth, such that it cultivates a love and they're just encouraging one another. They're being with one another. They're serving one another day in and day out, not just on the Lord's Day, but throughout all the week. All spiritual gifts then are service gifts. There's a purpose for them. They're not given for selfishness or self-exaltation, but namely for the service of the people of God. This is the emphasis. For the maturity. In other words, the church's practical goal is its own maturity. In unity. Which comes from knowing, trusting, and growing up into Christ who purchased it on our behalf. You know, and there's a danger here. I and mean, when you hear a sermon like that, I hate preaching on pastors. <laughs> I do. I hate preaching about myself. I hate... Part of it is, is because I have to examine myself. It's not to exalt me or to say I'm something special. I'm not special. What you find is the amazing grace of God that, that you find this interdependence upon the church and I, I, I realize that I'm only here today because of you. You know? 
It's your God's grace upon me. What you find is that, that God gives these gifts to the church so that the church would be built up. And that, that, the, that the church also, whenever they embrace the gifts that they have, man, they build the rest of the church up. And that's me. You know? There is a, a, a gracious and a glorious interdependence that I recognize that um, if it was not for you, then I would not be here. The love that you've extended to me, man, is just God's grace upon my heart and my soul um, every single day such that it provokes me to godliness and to love you more as Christ loves us. Um, but at the same time, um, the application mostly falls on me, I think. Falls on me. As I read the passage, I think of pastors and I think about the question, am I being useful in Christ's church? There's a quote by a pastor that just um, I want to read to you. He says, when the Lord calls me to give an account of my ministry in the last day, will I be able to say, Lord, I stayed at Christ Bible Church because I believe I could be most instrumental there in accomplishing your purpose, making a name for yourself among the nations and to gather your sheep from all the corners of the earth. When I can no longer say yes to that question, then my leadership here will be finished. And I ask myself that question. I ask myself as a pastor, am I being useful in Christ's church? I ask myself, am I, am I the instrument Christ saved me to be and made me to be? You know? You look at the church growth movement, uh, and you look at the church growth movement of Paul, and you, and you have to ask yourself as you submit to it, am I that? You know? It's an important and an essential question. But it's not just for me, it's for you. And it's essential because Jesus Christ died for it. Do you understand how the Apostle Paul works as he roots everything in the gospel? Thus it's important. That's when we gather together and we do this and we do that and we exalt this and we don't exalt that. Um, it's for a particular purpose. It's always rooted in the gospel. Um, thus it's essential and it's important. You know, because some people will come and they'll ask, why don't you do this and why don't you do that and why don't... Why don't you have this and why don't you have that? It could just be that, that um, God hasn't matured us enough to know what those ministries are. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm convinced here that um, our church shouldn't look like other churches in a lot of ways. Why? Because our churches don't have, our church doesn't, those churches don't have you. And they don't have me. And we're not ultimately called to look like every single body else. That um, my church philosophy of ministry is simply to mature the body. And as God reveals the grace that is extended to each and every person, we build the ministry around that. That seems to me to be Paul's view. You know, that the ultimate end is not a uh, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, uh, Sunday school, kids club, nursing home ministry, prison ministry, this and that. I used to think that was it. I don't think it is anymore. I think it's a mature body that simply loves one another and as they come to knowledge of the grace that God has extended to them in Christ, not only savingly but servingly, um, they embrace who they are in Christ. Thus, we would have a unique fingerprint and a unique footprint here in Kingsport, Tennessee that you should not find anywhere else in the world. Our music should sound different. Our songs should sound different. Our preaching should sound different. Our ministries should be different, you know, as God burdens us for things like abortion and, and abolishing that and evangelism. And sure, some things will go across the board because Christ's character and nature is across the board. But at the same time, like, I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited 
you know what's exciting about family and, and fathering and mothering and being a parent? It's just to see those little ones birthed into the world and they all come out so different, you know. And you want them to be something and you want them to all have some type of same character, but you also realize they're all living their own lives. And as fathers and mothers, we're to instruct them and pray that God gives them, brings them to the end of themselves and they encourage the gospel. And I just can't wait to see when they get to their 20s and they get to their 30s and see what they do for the Lord. I don't care if they're preachers. Just that they love Jesus Christ with the whole of their heart. And they give it all to the glory of God. And I think the same about you. I think about the ministry that God has given me here. And I think on a lot of days I want to build my own kingdom. And I want to make it this and I want to make it that. That'll never be as beautiful as what Christ makes it. We may never do all the things that all the other churches in our area or throughout the world does. And that doesn't matter anymore. But we have to be what Christ saved us to be. What Christ empowered us to be. And I don't know where we'll be in 10 years. And I'm, and I'm hesitant to say and to place goals upon this church that we need to be this in 10 years, we need to be this in 15 years. Um, because I don't know the grace that God has extended to many of you. You know? But I'm excited to see as you mature and as you grow and as this body comes together as a mature new man and we're not carried away by every single thing that the world has, every this doctrine and that doctrine and the chaos and the culture and this and that, you know, as we are mature enough to come together unified for this single purpose of honoring and glorifying Jesus Christ, gathering around His Word, preaching His name and proclaiming it to the world, man, I, I, I'm hesitant to say what will be in 10 years because I don't want to place any yoke upon God. But at the same time, I'm simply praying that God would just make us what He wants us to be. That God would just give us more of a fervency and an effectual uh, prayer for the preaching of God's Word and the counseling ministry and the, and, the, and the engagement of the body one with another such that it just makes us more like Jesus Christ so that the world would come in here or we would go out there and they would look and they would say, that is distinctly different, that is otherworldly, that is something um, that this world cannot buy. Because, and we tell them that's because they didn't, Jesus did. He bought it. He bought it with His own blood and it is out of this world. It is eternal and it is distinctly different. The unity that is expressed in this, in this body is out of this world. They would be willing to, to live and to die and to give themselves over to each other in such a fashion um, that, that, that pictures the very nature of Christ. Thus the world looks in and they peer into the very character and nature of God and it scares them to such an extent that they either repent and believe or they sear their own conscience. Why? Because the truth is so evident. Like that's what we need to be. And whatever ministries come with that, we will embrace as we go. Are you being useful in Christ's church? Are you an instrument, the instrument that Christ saved you and made you to be? And is He wielding it in this congregation? And is He using you to wield that in this congregation? 
I love this church, and I love the fact that this is a family-oriented church. I do. Um, man, the family is so important. But in the pursuit of the families, I would beg you not to forget the church. You know? I think sometimes we can come in so enamored um, with our, our own little families, and we should be. Man, don't, don't forsake um, what God has given you and the responsibility of your families. Um, you know? But I think sometimes as families we can take on so much that it, that it disallows and, and, allow, and makes us neglect what God has given us here in the church. Do you understand that the family is only so important because the family envisages and is an illustration and an exemplification of God's family? Brothers and sisters in Christ, fathers and mothers in Christ, and children in Christ as we all come together, that that is for this. Husbands and wives were, were given for that, Right? That the family will fade away, but the church of Jesus Christ, God's people, His universal bride of all the ages, and here locally, um, will we'll, 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 we'll live on forever in eternity. Thus, these things were fashioned for those things. So embrace the family and run after your children for the glory of God that they may be saved and raised up in His nurture and admonition of the Lord. But while you do it, don't forget the church. Don't forget those people that have come alongside you and are sitting beside you and in front of you and behind you now. For that is the purpose of this. We gather together to mature this. And how does that happen? It doesn't happen from me and, uh, primarily investing in you. or In a sense it does, but, it, but, 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 but all of us coming to the realization that we are here for each other. And that the maturity is not in a faithful pastor that preaches, uh, stands up and preaches week in and week out. And we have a, a faithful doctrinal statement, but it's when the whole body comes together and it nurtures itself and love is the expression and the ultimate ethic of that body. And at the end of the day, we just ask, is this us? Is this me? And ultimately, the answer is no, right? Because we have not attained that which we have yet been attained for. We have not apprehended that which we have been apprehended for. But at the same time, I want to encourage you, church, because you are that. You are that for me. And I know I tell you this often. And I want to tell you as often as I can. Um... Much like I tell my boys and my girls how much I love them and what a blessing they are. But this is the only church I truly feel like I've experienced the presence of God in this way and the love that has been expressed to one another. So don't walk away feeling ultimately deficient. Walk away feeling the very presence of Christ. Um, as I do week in and week out. As you express your love for me. I mean, I couldn't get somebody to come over for lunch today because everybody was already eating lunch with other people. I mean, just the fellowship that you have for one another. It's like watching a, a young, my son and my daughter come together and just, and just, you know, care for themselves, you know. To watch my little ones get each other ready for bed and to feed one another and things like that. Some people say you're taking away, they're growing up too early, you're taking away from the childhood. I say, no, this is what life is about, loving one another. So I want to encourage you, church, that you are, I believe, I'm growing up into that mature man in Christ. And I praise God for it. Hold fast. Keep it going. Because that's the true church growth movement. And when the world sees that, and when we mature in Christ, Christ will take us to the ends of the earth. He will take us into our communities. He will take us into the highways and through the hedges. And the world will not be able to deny 
whose we are. We are Christ's. Let us pray. Father, we love and thank you and praise you for the privilege it is just to call upon your name. God, we um, are so indebted to you. Father, we are more than indebted to you. But we realize, Father, that we are not here to pay a debt. God, we are here to live in the grace that you have bestowed upon us. God, we could never, thus we, would, we could never repay all the treasures and the glories that we have in Christ. Otherwise, grace would not be grace. So we embrace grace today, Father. And out of a gratitude of heart, we preach. Out of a gratitude of heart, we serve. Out of a gratitude of heart, we live. Out of a gratitude of heart, Father, we grow. Help us not, Father, to labor harder and more diligently for ourselves or even for one another, but for the cause of Christ. Help us, Father, not to uh, shape ourselves and measure ourselves according to the standards of the world and this or that. I think there's something the ultimate standard of ministry, Father, that we will attain to one day and then we could just lay our swords down and no longer have to fight. But realize, help us to realize, Father, that this will be a lifelong endeavor. God, and would you give me years and decades, Father, to give myself over to this church that it may produce a mature man in Christ, Father, until, we, uh, until the day that we come to the unity of faith in Christ. Father, would you just make this a congregation of love with the truth so permeate our hearts and souls um, such that we appropriate it by faith and love is the consequence of that. Father, would you, um, by your grace, continue to just mature this body, Father, in such a way that it would be undeniable to the world that we are different. There would be such a contrast between the cultural ethic and the ethic, Father, of our church. Um, not that we can glory in of ourselves, but we say that this is for whom Christ died and this is for what he died for. Not only that we would be his, but that, we would, that he would give us back to the church and back to the community to serve and, and to have purpose within the world, Father. We are so thankful for Christ who is a warrior king who enters into the world and descends and ascends and, and, and gives gifts to men, Father, for this very purpose, to make us what we are not. And help us as a body to embrace that, not only as a pastor, God, I have fallen so sure of your glory, not only as an unbeliever, but also as a believer. But Father, would you allow me just the, the blessed privilege um, of serving this congregation and clinging to Christ for the rest of my days. Father, and as I do that, I just peer into the very gaze of your son's character as it is displayed upon this body, Father, and I revel in your glory as we meet together this morning. May that be the, the case for all of us, Father. May we all say faithfully that, um, that we met with you this morning as we met with God's people around his word and the means that they've provided. Father, would you just continue and carry on the work that you do? Father, would you simply make us what you desire us to be? Father, help us not to build our own kingdom, but build yours. And help us, Father, to embrace it with joy. In Jesus' name, amen.